Welcome to the Awesome Pod Mix. You are listening to Abby. A reputed filmmaker once said, "When a piece of art invokes a similar feeling amidst a large audience, it's the triumph of the filmmaker. That's the magic of cinema." I love the magic of a good story. The idea behind this podcast was to talk about how certain movies and TV shows made me feel when I watched them for the very first time. Today, I'll be talking about the second episode of Marvel Studios' Moon Knight. Whether Marvel creates movies or TV shows, they are all cinematic. This episode's title is Summon the Suit, written by Michael Casline and directed by director duo Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson. The episode begins with the growl of a jackal over the black screen, fade in, and we see a shot of the sand as if we were in the desert. Steven wakes up startled as if he had a nightmare. He removes the covers and tries to run but is held back by the ankle restraint. He stumbles and falls face smacked on the floor. Steven looks up and sighs. Steven walks up to his bathroom, opens a cabinet and checks out his three reflections. Steven challenges his many reflections to speak up. There is no response. Steven says, "Yeah, didn't think so." Steven walks to work without his work bag. We see an upside down shot of Steven climbing the museum's entrance stairs. He spots a handyman stepping out of the museum. He looks up and finds JB barricading the area with stanchion. Steven inquires, "What happened?" JB reveals about the burst pipes, but he's suspicious. Steven inquires if JB has seen the security footage, and JB reveals he was about to. Steven wants to survey the footage along with JB. and claims he has some very important information about the incident. JB doesn't want Donna to know that he let Steven in. Steven warns JB that what he is about to see on the security monitor is going to melt his brain. Steven says it's like Area 51 like MI6 bonkers brave buddy. If you built it up like this, you are bound to fall face smacked to the ground. You can't oversell like this. You always undersell and when they see it, it blows their freaking mind. Rookie mistake, Steve. Rookie mistake. Area 51 is a highly classified United States Air Force facility. It is believed to be heavily guarded underground lab where government keeps and studies captured alien aircraft and possibly even aliens. MI6 is the secret intelligence service of the United Kingdom. Steven asks JB, "Are you ready, mate?" Roll the tape. As we see the security footage, we can only see Steven running and crying to himself. This scene reiterates that it's okay for guys to cry and feel petrified. The cameras failed to capture the invisible jackal. Something similar has happened on the TV show Supernatural where hellhounds were invisible to the naked eye. The characters on that show make a unique pair of spectacles to see those hellhounds and save their lives. Was Steven able to see the jackal because he was resurrected? Since he's been to the underworld and back, maybe he can see those unearthly beings. Steven asks JB to try a different camera angle. Steven continues to say Wait for it. Wait for it. JB puts two and two together and figures that Steven messed up the beautiful loose. JB says, "Larry in maintenance is absolutely going to shoot you." Steven says, "I swear there was a big dog chasing me, like a big hound, exactly as I mentioned in my first episode description. Hellhound." JB says, "Hounds of the Baskervilles, was it?" Steven says, "Egyptian jackal. It was a jackal." The Hounds of the Baskervilles is a crime novel written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Steven requests JB to fast forward to the point when he comes out. He taps in the keys and we see Mark walking out, looking straight into the camera as if he knew Steven would investigate the very next day. 
JB says, still you, bruv. Before Stephen could say his dialogue, I jumped the gun and said, that's not me. And so did Stephen. The next scene begins with a shot of a calming indoor water fountain tabletop. The HR manager informs that the museum has no wish to press charges. Stephen breathes a sigh of relief. The HR manager offers Stephen a hot beverage. He has done his due diligence and spoken to Stephen's colleagues. He learnt that it has been a bit of a struggle for Stephen lately. Stephen is at his most vulnerable at this point. He doesn't deny that he's been struggling. The HR manager suggests a group of doctors. He says they have a long-standing relationship with them. Not that they are good doctors. He even hands Stephen a pamphlet and assures him that they are wonderful. He could arrange an appointment for him. Stephen agrees. He thinks they're quite posh and says, It appears that they are good listeners. The HR manager says they really are. My question to the HR manager, Are they really? The HR manager says, I know this is classic HR to say, but you're not alone. And Stephen quips, that's part of the problem, in it. HR manager says, before you leave us, I'm sorry for the protocol of it. Any museum property on your person? Stephen says, no, I haven't nicked anything. But he searches his pockets as he says that. After his search, Stephen says, no, nothing. The HR manager points at Stephen's name tag. Stephen with a V. Stephen removes the name tag and places it on the table. In this shot, Stephen's name tag is in focus. Then the focus shifts to Stephen's reflection on the table. It appears as if Stephen has been dumped. He is left with nothing. His hands are empty, but his feelings are oozing out like the water in the water fountain tabletop. Stephen is now at the square with the golden pantomime, who appears to be his unofficial therapist. Stephen reveals that he has been sacked. He doesn't blame them. He's a vandal. He should have been arrested. As he further reveals that he found certain things in his apartment, it dawns upon him that it's worth exploring. That could be his one chance to prove to himself that maybe he's not mad. As he thanks and hugs the pantomime, the pantomime shows a little movement for a second. Stephen arrives at central London storage. He informs the desk guy that this is the fifth branch he's visiting today. He may have a storage unit under the name of Stephen Grant or Mark. This guy at the desk remembers Mark. He escorts Stephen to the storage unit. We see the lights in the corridor switch on and off one after the other as in when the overhead lights sense some movement. We have previously seen this corridor in the end credit sequence. The desk guy unlocks the door for Stephen and leaves. Stephen enters, switches on the lights, and finds military-style setup and luggage inside. He looks around, opens a duffel bag, and finds a gun. Stephen freaks out. He drops the gun like a hot potato. There are stacks of different currencies and an American passport belonging to Mark Spector. He's stunned to see the golden scarab. As he picks it up, it dawns upon him that it's totally real. The scarab spreads its wings and starts to levitate. It tries to find a way, like a compass. Stephen is amused. Stephen says, I say you are a compass, but you're not even pointing north. Suddenly, Mark speaks to Stephen, and the scarab sticks back to its base. Mark wants Stephen to listen to him carefully. Mark acknowledges that Stephen may be scared and confused, but he wasn't supposed to witness any of this. Stephen thinks he's some sort of mad secret agent. Mark explains it's more complicated than that. 
Stephen can't make heads or tails of what Mark is saying. Stephen asks, what? Am I possessed or a demon? Mark reveals Stephen might be in danger and he can protect him just like he did last night. Mark doesn't want Stephen's interference, so he wants Stephen to sleep and surrender control. Stephen is appalled at the suggestion. He's never giving him control and he doesn't care how handsome he is. Stephen, buddy, do you have a little crush on Mark? What makes you think he's handsome and you're not? He's you. You look just the same. I know you're like a goofball, but you're a good person. Don't trade your goodness for his handsomeness. Stephen insists that Mark disclose what he actually is. Mark says, I serve Konshu. I'm his avatar, which means you are too, sort of. What does he mean by sort of? Mark says, we protect the vulnerable and deliver Konshu's justice to those who hurt them. Konshu, Egyptian god of the moon, Oh my god, that's the stupidest thing I have ever heard. You are not the only one, Stephen. You're not the only one. Stephen blames all of his insanity on the one piece of steak he had on Sunday. He feels like he's having a panic attack, so he sits down on the cot. I made a deal with Konshu. Some sort of Faustian bargain, I assume. Stephen feels like he should visit the hospital. The deal is contingent on you not interfering, Stephen. Mark's reflection can be seen on the barrel of the gun. This visual signifies that Mark as a character is dark beyond comprehension. Mark says, now give me the body. Let me finish this and you'll never hear from me. Stephen says, you want my body, right? Yeah. How about this for a deal? I'm going to take this bag full of illegal stuff and I'm going to go straight to the authorities. They're going to put me away so I don't hurt anyone else. And hopefully NHS will fill me up with enough pills so that you get out of my head. NHS is National Health Service in the United Kingdom. Stephen doesn't want to hurt anyone. He's a nice guy willing to surrender himself to the authorities who will drug him but not to his other identity. Mark does want to help the vulnerable but at the the cost of ignoring Stephen's vulnerabilities. The lights start to flicker the moment Stephen talks about giving up Mark's identity and belongings to the authorities. This is code for conscious appearance. Stephen steps out of the storage unit, shuts the door and the lights go back to normal. He looks to one side of the corridor. It's pitch dark. When Stephen turns to look at the other side, the camera tracks into him to make a mid-close up. He squints to see who is at the other end. The lights start to switch on and off randomly. He looks in both directions. Konshu appears and disappears and reaches closer to Stephen as the overhead lights go on and off. Stephen steps back a little and then runs, screaming as Konshu chases after him. Stephen keeps running inside the maze-like storage unit, unable to find a way out. The locked door is being pounded as if someone wants to get out. Stephen reaches a spot where Konshu is blocking his pathway. Konshu's beak head is levitating over his body as he instructs Stephen, Give it back, you fool! The storage unit door opens with a bang. Stephen screams and the frame freezes. I don't know why they made this choice to freeze the frame. Maybe to make the audience think that something bad happened to Stephen? It's extremely short-lived and we see Stephen running out of the building in the very next shot. In an attempt to hold on to the falling duffel bag, Stephen trips and falls onto the road. A motorbike comes to a screeching halt to avoid the crash with Stephen. Stephen covers his face and his head as a reflex. 
We see Layla in an upside-down shot sporting a helmet and riding that same bike. She recognizes Mark and bombards him with questions. Where have you been? What the hell is going on? Is this Steven the latest fake identity for you? I figured you were using a coded message when we spoke over the phone. As Steven rides pillion with Layla, Steven's concern is how Layla found him. She tracked his phone because she thought he wanted her too after he switched the phone on. She's upset that he didn't give her any sign that he was alive. She was worried sick thinking he was in danger or kidnapped again. Kidnapped again? For what? Layla thought to herself that Mark had the suit so he would be fine. So Layla knows about the Moon Knight suit and that it's some sort of protective armor for Mark? Steven clutches onto Layla's shoulder as she unloads on him and Layla snaps at him for the same. Steven doesn't know what to hold on to. The entire bike ride is super awkward for Steven. It gets even more awkward when they pass a speed bump and Steven accidentally holds her by her waist. Layla tries to make him realize the spiral he's put her through. It's not okay as she's still his wife. Steven reacts. What? Wife? I was just as surprised as Steven was. Layla is like he can drop the act and the accent. Steven says it's not an act and that's how he talks. The entire shot taking in this scene is shaky, awkward close-ups of Steven, reflection shots of Layla in the bar and mirror. It certainly shows that both the characters are awkward and gives us an unsettling feeling. Layla wants Steven to get off the bike. Steven pleads and promises that he would tell her everything if she would take him to his apartment. At the apartment, Layla enters, looks around and walks up to the aquarium. A few seconds later, we see Mark's reflection in the aquarium, but Steven is still standing by the door. Mark thinks Layla shouldn't be around and Steven should get rid of her. Mark says, you are way out of your depth. If Steven is way out of his depth, so are you, buddy. Potato, potato. Steven says, I just want my life back. Layla sarcastically comments, I'm getting that. But Steven wasn't talking to her. He was talking to himself, sort of. Steven reveals that he's staying in his mother's apartment and that he is not Mark. He's Steven. We learn that Mark has a strained relationship with his mother and has not been on talking terms with her. So, is the mother real? I get how it feels when you're not on talking terms with your parents. I hope they explore the mother-son relationship on the show. Layla finds a book on French poems. Both Stephen and Layla recite the lines from the poem. The contents of the poem go something like, Do not write, I am sad and want my light put out. Summers in your absence are as dark as a room. I have closed my arms again. They must do without. Knocking at my heart is like knocking at a tomb. Do not write. Stephen claims she is his favorite poet. Turns out she is also Layla's favorite poet. So Stephen's learning French and hieroglyphics. Stephen thinks it's not that impressive. You don't have to sell yourself short there, Stephen. Learning any art form is impressive. Hieroglyphics is not like a language. It's more like an alphabet. But you still have to know ancient Egyptian to read it. It's funny that the alphabet Stephen picks to explain is funeral rites. Have the funeral rites not been performed for a certain someone, which is why they are unsettled in the underworld? When Stephen compliments Layla, he instantly retracts it and apologizes as he didn't mean it in a creepy way. Layla is not buying Stephen's charade.
Layla shows the divorce papers Mark sent her and asks Stephen to sign. Stephen is dumbfounded and says he would never divorce Layla. Stephen doesn't know how to explain and doesn't expect Layla to believe him. He's about to show what's in the bag. What's in the bag? What's in the bag? What's in the bag? Brad Pitt, seven. Yeah, I'm the jerk. What's in the bag? Stephen stops in his tracks once Mark mentions that Stephen is gonna get Layla killed. If he shows her the scarab, he'll be responsible for Arthur's men coming after her. Stephen tries to steer the conversation and says it's nothing, but Layla pushes Stephen out of the way and finds the scarab. The scarab to Amit's Ushapti, which evidently both of them fought side by side and retrieved together. Layla is furious. Stephen's response is, Take it. One second ago, Stephen was worried about Layla's safety. And now what? Suddenly he doesn't care? Stephen is hell-bent on proving he's not Mark Spector and that he works in a gift shop, or he used to. Stephen thinks he's in danger and Layla is the only one who can help him. I think you got that backwards there, buddy. You are the only one who can help you. In all honesty, Stephen doesn't remember why they have been looking for the scarab. He doesn't remember the adventures or his life with Layla. Cops arrive at Stephen's apartment and you can tell they are fake because their surnames are the middle name and last name of the 35th US president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. The cops outside are so casual in the behavior. Usually cops are not this chill. In all fairness, the guy cop does get agitated and slams open the door. Both the cops search Stephen's apartment without a warrant. In the meantime, Layla made herself scarce. The lady cop questions about the ankle restraint and Stephen clarifies it's for his sleeping disorder. The lady cop checks the bathroom and finds nothing. The guy cop picks up a pyramid artifact and asks, what is it? Stephen sweetly answers, paperweight, which he bought at a paperweight shop. I didn't know there were dedicated paperweight shops. I thought Stephen would say stationery or a gift shop like in the museum. When the lady cop looks out the window, we see Layla on the roof ledge. The cop thinks Stephen has possession of a stolen item. The guy cop checks the duffel bag and finds Mark Spector's passport. They arrest Stephen for stealing and having a fake passport. Stephen is handcuffed in the backseat of the cop car. The lady cop researches in the car and learns that Stephen is a full-blown fugitive and has killed archaeologists in Egypt execution style. Zip tied and shot back in the head. The guy cop says, that's dark, man. What sort of law enforcement officer doesn't do their due diligence before arresting an innocent person? The cop car arrives at a low-lit alleyway in a dilapidated neighborhood. Stephen is confused because this is not a police station. As the guy cop adjusts the rear view mirror, we spot the croc scale tattoo on his arms. Stephen spots a girl playing football and screams for help not knowing that even she sports the croc scale tattoos. Even in the TV show Ted Lasso, there are young girls playing football in the streets and alleyways of Richmond, which is a town in southwest London. Stephen feels like his head is hurting and we see Mark's determined reflection trying to take over. Stephen resists. 
Mark insists that Stephen must surrender control, but Stephen is reluctant after hearing about the execution-style killings. Mark tries to explain, it's not like what you think. Stephen is determined. Stephen says, I am never giving you control again, ever. Do you hear me? The walkie-talkie beeps. Arthur, over the walkie-talkie, responds, Yes, I hear you loud and clear, Stephen Grant of the gift shop. Stephen falls out of the car. Arthur appears at Stephen's head side and moves around using his crock cane. You can clearly hear the sound of the broken glass as Arthur walks. It is so unsettling. Arthur apologizes for making Stephen wait because Arthur wanted to better understand Stephen's situation. Arthur asks for the keys and uncuffs Stephen. Arthur compliments the fake cops on doing a terrific job. Arthur lends a hand to Stephen. Arthur says, no wonder your scales don't balance. It must be very difficult having all those voices inside one head. It must be very difficult having lost all the screws in your head, Arthur. Arthur says, Stephen Grant, Mark Spector, Konshu. I'm curious. Do you think that Konshu chose you as his avatar because your mind would be so easy to break? Or was it broken already? Stephen says, no, I'm not broken. Yes, Stephen, stand your ground. You show this guy what you're made of. Stephen says, I just need some help, maybe. And it's okay to ask for help, Stephen, but not from this guy. Arthur says, that's right. That's why I am here to help. The color from Stephen's face fades away. Arthur notices and asks, okay, what is it? Do you see him? Do you see him right now? That's a privilege I no longer have. What privilege, Arthur? I like Konshu's attire. I think this is the first time we see it clearly and not under flickering lights. Konshu says, kill him. Arthur says, what's he saying, huh? Is he telling you to kill me? Konshu says, break his windpipe. Stephen says, yeah. Arthur says, just remember, you don't have to do everything he asks. Stephen doesn't have to comply with you either, Arthur. Arthur says, before you get excited and put on the cape, I would love to take this opportunity and show you around. Suddenly, the wind starts blowing and things start moving. Arthur assures Stephen that it's nothing. Arthur says, it's all right, it's all right. That's all he can do without your help. Come, let me show you around. This neighborhood used to have the highest crime rate in all of the city. So much suffering, so much pain. It was truly heartbreaking. Now, people don't lock their doors at night. They feel safe. People don't want to hear good news. They rather cling to their fear and cling to their pain. I disagree, Arthur. People just take time to process their pain. They don't like clinging on to pain or suffering. It's exhausting, okay? Arthur takes Stephen to the same location where we saw Arthur's introduction. People are seated on recliners watching a nature documentary on projection with their individual headphones. Food is free. Both Arthur and Stephen are vegan. Arthur hands over a tray to Stephen and offers him the lentil soup he made this morning. I see what Arthur is trying to do here. He's trying to establish a connection with Stephen and appeal to his good side. And then, at the right moment, he'll pull the rug from under Stephen's feet. Classic manipulation technique. Arthur says, Konshu always tries to ensnare those with a strong moral conscience. Konshu says, you have no conscience. Stephen gasps at the slightest of disruptions in the surroundings. Arthur says, you don't have to listen to him. He 
often throws temper tantrums like a two-year-old. None of the gods respect him. How come this is not the stupidest thing you've ever heard, Stephen? When Mark was telling him all these things, Stephen was dismissive of him. Stephen takes the bowl of soup and sits next to Arthur at a dining table. Arthur says, perhaps that's why he's banished. Concho says, I only punish those who have already done harm. I am real justice. Arthur asks, what's he saying now? I am real justice. Right on cue, all the people watching a nature documentary start laughing in unison. Stephen asks, can you hear him? Arthur says, not anymore. I was his former avatar before you. I was his fist of vengeance. Stephen says, I'm not the fist of anything. That's the little American man living inside of me. How are you so chill and eating the food that a complete stranger has offered you, Stephen? It could be drugged or worse, poisoned. Arthur likes to torture himself and he's going to torture you no less, Stephen. Arthur now comes to his main agenda. Arthur says, Konshu punishes those who walk an evil path. His retribution comes too late. By the time his fist of vengeance arrives, people have already suffered. Amit knows this too well. She tears evil up from the root, casting her judgment before the evil is done. That's why we must resurrect her. Stephen says, right. Isn't that a bit dodgy? Like trusting the judgment of a weird crocodile lady? Tread lightly, Stephen. Tread very lightly. Arthur says, you don't need to doubt her judgment. Oh, so he should just accept it without any logic and reasoning. Arthur says, Amit will light the path of good by eradicating the choice of evil. The imperative word here is choice, not evil. Arthur says, which brings us to the scarab. On cue, people around Stephen start to close in on him. Arthur says, the scarab functions as kind of a compass, leading us to Amit's tomb. She's out there waiting, longing to be freed, while the cruel masses deserve to face her judgment. And in the wake of their screams, evil eradicated to exist at that moment, heaven on earth. Sweet mother of God, what's with this man? Arthur is persuading Stephen to give up the scarab. Stephen denies possessing it. Mark wants Stephen not to give up Layla's name and instead surrender control. Arthur asks Stephen if he could speak to Mark. Arthur says, Mark, what has Konshu promised you? That this is your last mission and then you'll be free? Trust me when I tell you, Konshu is a liar. There's always one last thing. You are a liar too, Arthur. I don't believe a word you say. All this while, Mark's reflection can be seen upside down in a bowl containing bread. Stephen says, Sorry, if Amit judges people pre-evil, like before the fact, isn't she judging an innocent person? I mean, a thought can't be evil, can it? I think about killing my boss all the time, but I wouldn't actually do it. What about a child? Would she kill a child for something they might do in 30 years? Arthur has an explanation for everything. Arthur says, sometimes the cure is a little taste of the disease. The difference between medicine and poison sometimes is only dosage. Consider a diseased limb. Amputation. Horrific. Grotesque. But necessary for the larger health. Stephen says, a child is not a diseased limb. He addresses everyone. Is that what you all are into? Killing children? Maybe that's just me, but I kind of draw a line there at child murder. The distinctive difference between a hero and a villain is that a hero will never justify killing children or animals. And he wouldn't be killing children.
or animals. Forget justification. You are a hero, Stephen. You are my hero. Arthur now brags about the croc cane that is a gift from Ahmed to her first avatar. It contains a tiny sliver of her power. The croc eyes glow purple. Arthur says he doesn't want to use it. Stephen says then he shouldn't. Stephen says he can't help Arthur. Arthur says he can help him. All he needs to do is tell him where the scarab is. Arthur says, where is the scarab? Where is the scarab? We hear Layla's voice off screen. Layla says, I have it. She shows the scarab and walks towards Stephen. Arthur says, you couldn't possibly understand the value of what you're holding. Let me have it. I'll keep it safe. Konshu says, there is no deal in this mark. Fix this. Fix this. Layla says, summon the suit. Stephen behaves like he has no idea what she's talking about. Layla says, summon the suit. The suit. Stephen says, summon the soup. What you saying? The suit? Layla hands over the scarab, asking Stephen to keep it safe. Arthur realizes there is no other way. Layla urges Stephen to run from there. She saves him from Arthur's wicked men. Arthur stomps his cane onto the ground and chants in Coptic. The floor cracks with a purple glow. The floor melts like a pathway of an Einstein-Rosen bridge and we see the claw of a jackal emerging. Layla and Stephen seek refuge in an upstairs room filled with Egyptian artifacts. They bolt the door from the inside. Stephen says, Oh my God, I'm gonna die in an evil magician's man cave. Layla urges Stephen to summon the suit and Mark requests Stephen to let him in. Stephen begs the both of them to stop. Layla ensures Stephen he can do this. Stephen is apprehensive because he feels powerless. Layla tries to find another way. The jackal finally breaks the door open. Stephen can see the jackal, but Layla can't. Stephen yells jackal repeatedly. He steps back toward the window, trying to escape the jackal. Stephen breaks the window and falls. In mid-air, Konshu suggests summoning the suit. Stephen yells, suit, suit. Superhero landing in the dapper Mr. Knight suit. Stephen tumbles on one side despite the superhero landing. We catch Mark in the glass door reflection. Mark says, what the hell are we wearing? Stephen says, she said I needed a suit, so I did. Mark says, we meant the ceremonial armor from Konshu's temple. Not psycho Colonel Sanders. Colonel Sanders is the founder of the fast food chain called Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's finger licking good. And this is not a commercial. Steven says, I don't know how any of this works. I do look sharp though. Now is not the time, Steven. Mark says, where is the scarab? Steven searches and brings out two batons from behind. There's no end to Steven's amusement. He thought he would die a few seconds ago and look at him goofing around. The jackal crash lands on Stephen. Layla walks down the fire escape and searches for Mark. Stephen is tossed out breaking the wooden door and Layla gasps looking at Stephen's condition. Stephen tries to hold on. Stephen tries to hold on to the rear bumper guard but he uses so much force that it separates from the car. The jackal slams Stephen across all surfaces. Layla tries to help but is unsuccessful. She finds a water bottle and throws it in the direction of the jackal. We can now see the shape of the jackal as the water trickles down. The jackal thrashes both Stephen and Layla. Mark urges Stephen to give him control as Stephen clearly can't handle it. Stephen is way in over his head. He wants the jackal to get away from Layla. He calls jackal a plug ugly coyote. Looky here, looky here. 
float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. My name's Stephen with a V. Here Stephen is quoting the great Muhammad Ali. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. The hands can't hit what the eyes can't see. The phrase was often repeated to describe Muhammad Ali's style in the ring and it became shorthand for the man who considered himself the greatest. Stephen hits a solid punch. Stephen celebrates the victory. Wagwan! But it's way too soon. The jackal kicks Stephen in the chest and Stephen lands near a double-decker bus. It has a banner for GRC, Global Repatriation Council, the last of which we saw in the series Falcon and the Winter Soldier. The tagline says, reuniting you with your better half, like Stephen needs to reunite with Mark and Layla. People think Stephen is having a seizure or is drunk out of his wits. Stephen gets thrashed on the bus's window. A speeding car approaches and crashes into Stephen and the jackal. Stephen doesn't know when to give up. As Stephen tries to stand up, he puts his hand on the bus for support. We see Mark's reflection, maskless, already standing with a smirk on his face. Mark compliments Stephen on his punch. Mark tries to convince Stephen if he doesn't let him out, someone is going to get hurt. Stephen agrees and surrenders control. We see the Moon Knight costume forming around Mark. Mark removes the crescent moon weapons from his outfit. On Layla's instruction, he gets the jackal away from the crowd. Mark climbs the building and the jackal follows. He hops on from one building to another. We see the promo shot with the moon crescent in the background as Steven leaps from one building to another. We see many such shots of Moon Knight parkouring around the city, running in the streets and the moon's reflection in the water. Moon Knight leaps in the air, grabs the jackal and impales him on a pointy church spire. The jackal decimates like people did when Thanos snapped the infinity gauntlet. The moon crescent weapon comes reverberating back to Mark and he extends his arm to grab it. Mark transforms back into his casual clothes. He checks the pockets for the scarab but is unable to find it. He curses his luck. The scarab is lying on the cobbled street along with broken shards of the window glass. Two feet appear in the frame and we see a withered hand picking up the scarab. Arthur claims that the scarab belongs to him. He can offer food and clothing in exchange, but not the scarab. Layla watches this from a distance on her motorbike. Arthur repeats the same dialogue he said to the old lady before draining her life force. He does the same with this man. Arthur is now in possession of the scarab. He spots Layla in the distance. Layla speeds away. We see a cracked mirror in a triangular wooden frame on a round stage surrounded by chairs. At this moment, Stephen realizes how horrible it feels to be stuck inside someone else's mind. If I were him, I would say, that's how it feels. Mark tries to pacify him. Stephen feels claustrophobic. He questions Mark about how long he's been doing it. Mark reveals it has been a long time. Stephen doesn't want to be stuck. He requests for his body back, but Mark doesn't comply. Stephen tries to overtake but fails. Mark reveals that something has changed. Stephen feels sorry for himself as he cannot even do one thing properly. Stephen blames Mark for his low-quality life and calls him a parasite. Mark promises he will leave him alone once his debt is repaid. Mark tries to reason with Stephen and informs him that if it weren't for Konshu, they wouldn't be alive. His servitude is the price he's paying. Stephen questions the dignity of the servitude. 
as it's mostly covered in blood. Stephen blames Mark for ruining everything, hurting and abandoning his wife. Mark defends himself, saying he's protecting Layla or Konshu would go after her. Stephen refuses to believe or trust Mark. That's very hypocritical of you, Stephen. Aren't you also judging Mark without knowing all of the facts? You're waging a war with Mark, declaring that you won't let him have a moment of peace. Mark tells Stephen to shut up and stomps on the cracked mirror repeatedly. The wind blows the chairs away as the church bells ring. Konshu is seen standing on the adjacent roof. He reminds Mark that he promised Stephen won't interfere. Mark assures him that he can handle it, but Konshu doesn't believe him. Konshu calls Mark ungrateful and accuses him of altering the terms of their agreement. Konshu ridicules Mark. Mark assures him he'll get the scarab. When Konshu informs that Harrow already possesses the scarab, Mark promises to find another way and reach Ahmed's tomb before Arthur Harrow and he will do whatever it takes. Konshu threatens Mark saying that if he chooses to part ways, he will use Layla to do his bidding and Mark won't appreciate that. Mark asks, where are we headed? Concho's wrappings transition to a red drape that falls off from a cracked mirror. In the cracked mirror reflection, we see Stephen wrapped in a bedsheet with his knuckles covered in blood. The camera pans to reveal Mark, who's sitting on the floor in his boxers. He's drinking alcohol straight from the bottle. His room is all messy, as if he had a fight with someone in there. He gets up and moves toward the window. The yellow curtains are blocking the view. Mark draws the curtains and we see the pyramids of Giza right outside. The camera tracks in, leaving Mark behind to show us the full view. The view of the pyramids of Giza. I'd be lying if I said I didn't notice Oscar Isaac's chiseled body. This was quite an eventful episode. It was filled with a lot of exposition. I'm usually not a fan of such episodes. I don't know how I feel about it. I'm hoping when further revelations happen, it's more fascinating and jaw-dropping. The end credit sequence begins. This time, there are a few image changes. It begins with a shot of two pyramids. And in between the two pyramids, we can see the crescent moon. Then we see the close-up of a crescent moon. There was one detail that I forgot to mention in the previous episode. We see a bunch of big studio lights. The rim of the studio lights transition into the edge of the crescent moon. It further transitions to the rim of the magnifying glass, along with bullet shells, documents, a compass, a Polaroid, a red scarf, which I think was the red drape with which the cracked mirror was covered. The magnifying glass rim then transitions to the rim of the ring that fractures into three. The rest of the visuals are similar to the previous episode. After the Moon Knight costume forms from the mummy wrappings along with the cape, hoodie and glowing eyes, we see Mr. Knight's costume with glowing eyes. Moon Knight title appears. Once the end credits finish, the slate reads, For more information on mental health resources near you, please visit the National Alliance on Mental Health at nami.org. You can listen to the Awesome Pod Mix and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. If you like what I'm doing, I'll be launching the Awesome Pod Mix page on Patreon soon, and you can support me there. Thanks for listening.